Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop, and hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest of my podcast today is Nemo de Krill, CEO of Sigma Polaris. There is a saying, you can get a book to be popular by getting eight out of 10 people to like it or by getting two out of 10 people to love it. Now, when you're a giant, you need most of the time, the eight out of 10. You need to be having almost all of the people you speak with think that at least you are interesting and good. But I think as a startup, one of the things I've realized is we need to work with people that truly buy into it. The people that also believe in the mission. Because if you speak with them, sales cycles get shorter, procurement gets easier, and all of a sudden, you get a reference and you get a quote from every single client. And I think today we've had a quote from almost every single client we have worked with because we choose clients that believe. Instead of trying to get tons of people get interested, we try to get some people super excited. This is Nemo. He traveled many paths driven by a passion to discover, understand, and solve worthy problems. From mathematician to logician, to florist for the Danish queen, to entrepreneur. He was honored the youngest ever goodwill ambassador of Denmark, presenting joint ventures of world-leading companies internationally, such as Maersk, Vestas, Grundfos, and Lego. His constant passion for understanding and solving problems naturally led him down the path of entrepreneurship. With passion and drive, Nemo decided to tackle the age-old problems of inefficiency, discrimination, and inaccuracy in recruitment and HR in general. And that's why he founded Sigma Polaris. The vision? Creating a world where HR analysis is based solely on meritocracy and where bias and discrimination are things of the past. As a consequence of this, their mission has become to change the world of work and shift how companies build, engage, retain and capitalize on the use of diverse teams in today's workforce. This inspired me, and hence I invited Nemo to my podcast. We explore what's broken in the way we recruit our talent today, and that there isn't a talent problem, but a distribution problem, and how we can fix that with technology, in particular by removing bias and having to rely on our intuition. Nemo also shares the most important lessons learned from his startup journey, that building a business requires much more than just an amazing product. What advantage leveraging diversity gives them and why his business couldn't have been what it is today without investing the time in exercise, i.e. taking care of himself. And by listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, his strategy to be less all over the place. Secondly, how you can create a 300% impact difference in a matter of just three months. 
thirdly, that you can get your product to be popular by getting 8 out of 10 people to like it, or getting 2 out of 10 to love it. And fourthly, that it doesn't matter how good your pitch deck is if it doesn't get shared. Well, hi Nemo, thank you very much for making the time available today and being the guest on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And yeah, I got to know your colleague and yeah, he made me, how do you say that, curious about what your company is really doing. And I have been, well, in the software space, but particularly also in the HR space for a while. I've also been connected to the recruitment space. What I've also learned from the trends and the, the people that I interview in my podcast, there's a lot of things going on there, particularly around the area where you're specializing with the whole phase, science of taking bias out. That's what we're going to talk about today. Like, I'd like to hear your vision, the big idea behind this. Before we start, just a little bit about yourself. If you had to describe yourself as a person or entrepreneur and characterize what words would come out there? Well, I don't know how much it influences my day-to-day anymore, but I will always say I'm a mathematician. Some ways that might, you know, solve myself a little short, but like I am an academic by trade. I spent a very long time studying in academia and that rigorous academic data-driven approach, you know, relying on proven things and going out and testing if things work or not, measuring them, will always be part of the way I operate. Yeah, like as a person, you know, maybe like a crazy Renaissance person, you know, I've always liked to travel around. I used to be a former international circus acrobat and I was a flautist to the queen, you know, I love learning languages and I think I'm one of those people that many people struggle to find like putting in a box because one <laughs> month I'm living in the UK and the next I'm in Korea. <laughs> but in the recent years, I've definitely, because I've put myself behind a valuable mission, I have been a little less all over the place in trying to make a real impact with a much bigger project instead of trying to do a lot of smaller disconnected things. And that's, I've had the joy of being a combination of, as you say, tech and impact. And I guess that's why we're speaking today. Exactly. Uh, That's exactly also why I invited you. This is the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast, and it's there for a reason. You know, that's the name in itself. So, yeah, I mean, making the connection then to uh, from what you are, I like the fact that you kind of place yourself in a box. And I know you a little bit better right now. And I think that definitely describes you. But I think it's also a very good starting point to start something big. Yeah, and realize that. So, talking, kind of making the switch towards your business, Sigma Polaris. First of all, how did the name came about? <laughs> Good question. Well, once again, from me being a little bit of a nerd. So, Sigma is a mathematical symbol for sun. When you add different parts together, and Polaris is a northern star. And Sigma Polaris was founded on the idea that maybe we could look at some objective things in people and use those for our direction by, you know, putting them through online assessments and the like, instead of relying on intuitions and, you know, a finger in the air. So Sigma Polaris came from the different pieces to give the direction. And that is where the name came from. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I like the way you've thought about this and how these names always come about. But make the switch then to the bigger mission, like the number of pieces that you're putting together in order to deliver upon that North Star. What is the big idea behind your company? And what was the big problem that you saw that was, was yeah, screaming for a solution? Well, I think the big problem was it's very difficult relying on intuition and 
be objective and fair. It's just always really, really difficult, which is why, you know, it doesn't matter, like in anything HR, doesn't matter if you're talking progression planning or hiring, you try to use more data-driven, like robust approaches. Uh And I found out because of a senior contact I had in Reed that a lot of recruiters didn't actually really have, like they didn't have any tools to help them. They had to use their own intuition or, or the tools they had were subpar. And the big idea came around and saying, well, why don't we help support them do that job better? Remove some of the natural errors of biases and inconsistencies, which are completely natural if you have to use intuition. There's nothing yeah. wrong with it happening. Like sometimes, of course, you have bad people, but most of the time it's natural process-driven things. How do we remove those? And how do we make them do their job even better by giving them good insights and speeding up their processes? And the main idea came around in looking at a very disjointed space of, I think, now over 40,000 recruiters in the UK, yeah. of recruitment firms, and thinking, you know, if it can be that segmented, it must be because no one gets an advantage with, with data. Because if anyone got a data advantage, some few players would have a much, much higher proportion of the space. Yeah, true. And thought, let's create that tech that can harness that data so that people can do their jobs better and we can remove some of those errors of bias and prejudices on occasion as well, even. Very well. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm actually, it made me look up when, you, when I heard the number 40,000 recruiters, independent recruiters in the UK. That, well, it tells a story in itself. So what is the opportunity if you get this right? If the technology is then helping people yeah, recruit in a far better way, who will benefit most from this? Is it business? Is it the employees? Is it both? So, you know, some people say that there isn't, and it's true, that there isn't a food problem in the world. There's a distribution problem. It's a little bit the same with talent. We have some, of course, there's some types of food that are in higher demand, but there's some types of talent where we need to nurture them, like cutting-edge developers and the like. But rule of thumb, there are so many brilliant minds scattered around and so many very competent people that are more like crafts or that can do amazing jobs that are just not in the right position. Sometimes it's because they said yes to a job that's wrong for them. Sometimes it's because a job that was right for them, they didn't get offered. So what is the possible impact of this? Well, sure, we are removing an awful lot of discrimination, and this will help phenomenally with all equality movements. But much more importantly, we will help place the best people in the right positions, which is amazing for the entire workforce and country. Yeah, I'm getting really interested how you do that. You really pinpoint a key point here. And in our pre-conversation, we also had, I mean, we connected the point also of the problem of bias, connecting it also to diversity. I mean, that's also, of course, a big movement these days, diversity and inclusion. How will it help there? So, yeah, well, this is a complicated question, but a very good one, because these things are indeed really like tied together. Because like, if you want to be inclusive, you can be inclusive with a fairly homogenous workforce. But one of the points with it is you want to be open for a lot of different workforces and make them like in different demographics. And basically... Many people may not apply for companies because they don't think they will get considered. And there's a lot of truth in that. There's a DWP study that showed that people with what they called non-stereotypical white name had to send up to 79% more applications to get a positive response. Well, if that's you, 
all of a sudden you're probably going to be less ambitious about which companies you send your CV to because you want a positive response. Yeah. And how is this tied together? Well, basically this here is a way where companies can also say and ensure that people, we use an approach where we remove our own bias in the first stages, not only through training, but we actually use a method where we cannot factor in a lot of biased data. It's impossible for us. So you uh -huh. can trust our process because we as a company take this very, very seriously. So when companies say that, first of all, they get more diversity, but also they start creating a culture where they pride themselves on being inclusive. And it's something that is not just a, a small marketing purpose. It's something they actually mean. Yeah. And when that happens, both the diversity and inclusion ends up benefiting tremendously. And of course, the next stage of it is towards the equity element, but equity needs to be built upon inclusion and diversity. Yeah, true. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's shocking that these, well, you don't even realize it, but of course, in many cases, people get hired because you know someone that knows someone, et cetera, et cetera. And it becomes almost incestuous, this whole hiring process. And that's amplified by the processes that are in place. You can see the truth of that with the WPP report. Poof. So, yeah, I mean, imagine that you're not amongst those favorable names or favorable perceptions about what you're about. And you have to kind of battle that. It's almost impossible. So how do you go about? I mean, what I want to kind of move the conversation towards is you're building a platform. Your company started January 2019. At some point, you decided, okay, enough is enough. We're going to do it. What sparked that moment, by the way, to say, I'm going to start this company. I'm going to solve this problem once and forever. Well, so initially, it was just a small little idea. I thought, I'm going to basically see if I can create something small that could make a recruiter's job a little easier. Because I thought it sounded as though they have a very complicated task in front of them. Like, how would I possibly hire a marketeer, for instance, or any position? It would be really difficult. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe I'll try and build something small. It was just sort of, it was a complete side project whilst I was doing my research degree. And I built something in three months together with some amazing academic minds. And it didn't take that much effort. And it outperformed people three times over and prevented almost 30 cases of bias very higher. Wow. That was the MVP. Now, we're at a complete different stage now, and it's amazing the journey we've been on. But basically, initially, I just tried to build something quite naive. It hadn't even been refined. There was no AI behind it. It was just looking at things that we know we could look at without biases, like verbal reasoning and problem-solving abilities, and looking at some work preferences, putting that together with a small, very simple ranking algorithm at that point, yeah. and giving that to some HR professionals. And the shocking thing was it worked. And I was like, okay, well, if we can build something, like it had some really cool science, I'm not going to lie, but it was still, if you can build something three months at work, what can you do in five years? Yeah. What could the impact be in 10? And that's when I knew, okay, like here is a chance to combine some really interesting academic research, some very fascinating mathematical problem solving with a mission that deserves being pursued. And that's what made me decide for Sigma Polaris. Originally, it was just sort of a small thing built in three months, but it worked. That's the way to start it. You know, you found something that where you've proven that a, 
there's a super valuable problem to solve. It's critical for companies to get it right. And you have an ability to exceed expectations, which is, I'm talking in my book about it as the broken triangle. But yeah, if those three things are in balance, you got something big. And that's a very good way to start a business on, which you've proven in this case. So kind of fast forward, three years down the line now, I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect. And this, of course, a big element of it is building a product that stands out and makes that difference. What were some very important decisions that you made along the way in order to create this and also get time to market in a, yeah, available fast? Well, I think like a very big decision that was a mistake was <laughs> I spent a very long time making it better, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is a common academic mistake because my thinking was if we make something that's amazing and we prove it's amazing, well, in that case, we can change the world in two years. <laughs> but as you also know, building a business is so much more than an amazing product. It is so yeah. much more than the R&D elements. And I spent a very long time on those side of the things, neglecting a little bit some of the market pushes. Now, we did work with Deutsche Bank, and we did have some amazing case studies happening, but I didn't spend enough time on our branding, on our website. I didn't spend enough time thinking about our business model. All of these things that, yes, I'm sure your entire audience are laughing at at the moment are completely business fundamentals. Yeah. But what I then did was, you know, when I realized this and it became apparent that it was not enough to just have a great product, that's okay. when I was led, took a complete step away from the product and said, okay, who do I need on my team? Who do I need as advisors? Who do I need to work with so that we can start filling out all of these blanks and we can start to get companies to listen? Because my product is amazing. Well, everyone says that. How do we get them to actually see it so they can try it? Because after they try it, we know that they will not stop. And that's the journey I've been on in particular in the last year is that taking the great product and starting to put a great business behind it, which is one of the places where, uh, you know, all of those things you talk about in the remarkable self starts to become really, really critical. Yeah. Yeah. So can you give any anecdotes of the things that really worked for you or particularly didn't work for you? I think one thing that has worked really, really well has been that there is a saying, you can get a book to be popular by getting eight out of 10 people to like it. <laughs> or by getting two out of 10 people to love it. Now, when you're a giant, you need most of the time, the eight out of 10. You need to be having almost all of the people you speak with think that at least you are interesting and good, also because of your brand. Yeah. But I think as a startup, one of the things I've realized is we need to work with people that truly buy into it. The people that also believe in the mission. Because if you speak with them, sales cycles get shorter procurement gets easier. And all of a sudden, you get a reference and you get a quote from every single client. And I think today we've had a quote from almost every single client we have worked with because we choose clients that believe. Instead of trying to get tons of people get interested, we try to get some people super excited. And if you're on a mission, as I believe many of this audience will be, lean into it, right? Don't try to be KPMG. Be whatever company you are with your mission and find the people that align with that mission. Let me make a small interruption here. Nemo just made a critical remark about what it takes to create the biggest impact. Funneling your focus towards the right audience. People that believe what you believe and people that will not just like what you do, but love what you do. It's a trait remarkable software companies master. 
they realize they can't please everybody. They offer something that's not just valuable, but also desirable. And they aim to create fans, not just customers. And this requires guts, because it's about making hard choices and taking position. But it pays off, big time. And you can master these traits as well. The first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will spark within the first 10 minutes. Back to the interview. Music to my ears. Speaking to the converted, obviously, but yeah, I mean, I really like that analogy that you make there. And it's so true, you know, get eight people to uh, eight out of 10 to like it or two to love it. And the two to love it really helps you to get attraction. And then the eight to like it will come later on. But hopefully even more of them will be true believers. That's all about making choices and being clear and stand for something and say no to the other things, dare to say no to the other things. Was that hard? Oh, saying no is always hard as a founder. There's so many opportunities, so many people yeah. that want to speak with you, people coming with ideas. And if there's one thing everyone wants to give a founder, it's advice. Oh, why don't you do it like this? Why don't you do it like that? And it's very difficult to learn which advice to listen to True. and which advice to park. And also, a lot of the advice is amazing, but it belongs for the next stage of your journey. And that's the thing. When you're a startup, you're agile. You need to make things happen this month, not in six months. And I think that's saying no bit, especially when you know that the idea is good. But sometimes if you don't have capacity to do anything more, you cannot follow the idea. And that's saying no bit has definitely been a learning journey that I have been on because I said yes to every opportunity in the beginning. And it brings you to a point of burnout. And starting to say no, all of a sudden, you start realizing that more things start happening, or at yep. least they happen faster, not fewer. True, exactly. Yeah. And that's it. Obviously, for a number of cases, it's also not like no, never, but not yet. And, yeah. Uh, In six months, so next year, exactly. Q3, you know? Possibly, indeed. What has been the hardest nut to crack for you on this journey so far? Was it the technology side? Was it the marketing side? It would be towards the how to find the right audience size. So this is the bit you're so good at. <laughs> like, it's that bit with, like after having a great product and not having a business, I then went on to the next step of my failure as a founder, which you fail 10,000 times and then you make a light bulb work. That's what Edison said, where I paraphrased, where I then got really, really good at telling our story to some extent, or you're fairly good, at least in conversation. But then the next bit is you need some people to listen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Where it doesn't matter how good of a pitch deck you have if it doesn't get shared. It doesn't matter how great a product and how great a narrative you can present if you don't get up on the stages. And this, I believe, yeah, has been a really interesting lesson to learn. And the hardest thing was basically connecting all of the different pieces in the right way, but also learning from it. And doing it one by one is not necessarily the worst way in the world. Like first you solve the problem of a good product, then you get a good story, and then you push the story into the world. I know some startups will successfully sort of butcher their way all of it at the same time and get a business up in three months. But rule of thumb is it takes a little bit longer. And as long yeah. as you learn on each step on this journey and you fix a problem at a time and then you move on to the next, well, eventually... You'll get it all to work. Exactly. 
Were there any specific things that, how do you say that, made all the difference that led to the aha moments? So could you repeat that question? I'm not entirely sure I follow. Was there any moment in that journey of connecting the dots and kind of sharpening and tuning the story where it suddenly clicked? And what was that about? I think maybe the closest I would be able to come to that would be after telling your story to someone, you also have to remember how they will tell the story to someone else. Uh-huh, true. And that, I think, was really a quite big aha moment when I realized that when we spoke with people, they got super enthusiastic, but they didn't know how to tell the story to their colleagues. I'm exaggerating a little bit. In Denmark, we say exaggeration enhances understanding. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. So after we then got that person amazed, we still didn't have the traction we expected internally in the organization. But when we realized this, we're like, okay, maybe we need to provide some sort of like simple introduction document to this person. The person knows all of it, but this yeah. document will lay it out in a way so that they can explain it or share that with their colleagues. Because most of the time, you don't find a decision maker. So many people talk about finding the right person. What you need to do is you need to convince an entire team. If it's a big company, you need them all to sign off. If it's a small company, all of them care about every single purchase they do. Yeah, They may only have one sign-off, but they all care. There will always be multiple people you need to convince on a purchasing journey. And how to communicate to the people you don't actually speak with. Well, I think that was quite an aha moment. So maybe that fits the bill of the question. Cool. Yeah, ma'am, that, that's completely true. I mean, if the story is fantastic, but people cannot amplify it and, and share it because it's not memorable enough, not simple enough, you're still far off from making that momentum coming. Or it requires them to be creative. Don't rely on them to be your salespeople. Be your own salesperson. You know? <laughs> that is completely true. Exactly. So yeah, what did you learn in the sales process? I mean, at some point, your product is there. You start finding people that actually that listen, that take action on it. What happened in the sales process? What do you mean what happened in the sales process? Well, I mean, were there any lessons, valuable lessons to learn there? I mean, was it always that you, I mean, did oh, you start winning eight out of 10 deals or was it the opposite yeah. around? Well, I guess there's a thousand lessons there. So I would like, we've always had a really good batting rate. Like if we get into meetings, it's always been really good. I think one thing that we learned is it's really difficult to find good salespeople. And everyone will say that, won't they? Where, you know, sometimes you just need to, you know, pull up your sleeves and say, it doesn't matter if you work in operations in marketing or if you are the technical founder. In a startup, you're all salespeople. And you have to yeah. all be salespeople. No matter how much you dislike it, if you're not all salespeople, you're probably not going to sell. <laughs> and trying to find someone and say, it's your responsibility and you take charge and et cetera, is all well and good if you are a medium-sized company with several million that you can throw towards the problem a year. But as a startup and towards the sales process, I think the one thing I've learned on that, it's really difficult to find someone that can carry it on their own. So what you need to do is, even though all of you will probably hate it, you need to carry it as a team. Yeah. And that means sending LinkedIn messages. It means every single event you speak at, you're like, oh, by the way, we have this special opportunity just for you. <laughs> and then just embracing that and say, okay, you know, every single job has its downsides. The amazing thing with working with a business with a mission is 90% of it is great. 
there's no reason to try and push to 95. We have to do sales if we work in a startup. That's a 10% of stock we don't like so much. <laughs> exactly, because at the end, you have to pay the bills as well. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. Well, I mean, I already referenced my book, The Remarkable Effect. And in that book, I'm talking about the 10 traits that define those companies that we keep talking about. Well, that are worth making a remark about. Well, you've clearly found a product that people love for the right reasons. What do you believe is one or one or two traits that you need to develop inside your company you to make that bar and to actually not only get to that stage, but actually stay there? So we have three different traits. I will find them here for, for you for in, in our uh, get them up that we say that we are doing our utmost to live and embrace as a company. Yeah. And one of them is be impactful every day. I like as a it. startup, every day needs to be impactful. Sure, some things will be things that have an impact a little bit later, but try to make every day a day that matters. Do at least you know, a couple of things that will move you forward because as long as you keep the momentum in the right direction, You'll get there. Yeah. Another one is be different together. Disagree healthily. Dispute what each other are saying and learn from that. Like the one person disagreeing is the most important person to be heard. Yeah. And especially in a startup, it can be really easy to get a yes attitude too far. Yes attitude does not mean that you say yes to everything. It means that you're trying to build upon each other's ideas, but that doesn't mean you don't also challenge them in the process. And embracing that difference, you know, hey, it's embracing diversity. That's part of that inclusivity of saying, you don't need to agree with me. Actually, yeah. if you disagree with me, I think it's even more important you mention it. But obviously in a good and constructive way. And our last one is succeed well and fail even better. Remember nice. Edison, right? He discovered 10,000 ways not to make a light bulb. <laughs> he did that in 14 months. 10,000 attempts at something. Well, if you do one a day, that is an awful long time to then finally get success. Where learn from your successes. If you get two successes in a row, try it again. Like with the same approach, try it again because maybe it's working. If you get two yeah. failures in a row, change. The biggest mistake you could possibly do is not to fail again, is to fail in the same way again. Because we get into patterns, and that can be great if they're constructive and terrible if they're negative, where succeeding quickly is important and failing quickly is critical. I love how you phrase that and the determination in there. You can feel it. But I mean, the whole thing around being different together, I mean, that is also something I think you amplify with your solution, you know, and its whole hiring process. It is about Absolutely. finding people that are different, that can be that voice that can make the difference in the trajectory of a company rather than hiring people Absolutely. that are friends of friends of friends and just say yes, because we like each other. 
in our team, we have ages ranging from the 20s to much older. I'm not going to say because a couple of members might get offended. <laughs> we have people from at least four different countries, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different religions, like all over the place. And it is amazing. Sure, it also means that you have more disagreement, but these disagreements are signs of innovation. Disagreement is not bad. It's good if you use it in the right way. I think at the moment, actually, LinkedIn, my first line is stop talking about diversity, start using it, right? When you put different people in a room, take advantage of it because otherwise, you know, why would you do it? I agree. Yeah. And I've seen the opposite of that yeah, at hand. Many times, and, many times, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's also the culture that you're creating. And I mean, how open you are for that. Because I believe as a leader, it's not your role to be always right. It's your role to, to get the best out of people and yeah. just listen. And sometimes you take their advice or sometimes you take that opinion and sometimes you don't. But at the end, <laughs> things will be better because of it. Absolutely. I mean, on this journey, I mean, one of the things I'm currently doing is I'm writing my second book about resilience. And you started beginning of January, well, in January 2019, then about well, a good year later, you know, the world collapses. What did it do to your company? Well, our sales phone got very sad very quickly. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> no, like it was difficult for everyone. And I think the one thing is any company that gets through it, your story gets so much stronger. That doesn't mean that it's the fault of companies that didn't. Man, it was beyond saving for many companies and it was awful. But if you could get through that period, you can get through anything. There is an English saying, so I'm a Danish national. And one saying I really loved when I heard in English for the first time was when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. And, you know, it was difficult when the world collapsed and it was difficult not being able to see your colleagues. And I think in the end of the day, it's enhanced some of those things that everyone had been talking about, which is you need people to feel comfortable with each other also now at a distance. And if anything, yeah. I think we have seen an explosion in the importance and also resource allocated towards culture and DEI in organization these days. Yeah. Sure, some of that comes from the great resignation, but a lot of it also just comes from the fact that when it got harder, if you didn't care, people would leave. Yeah, Not true. just because they're looking for other opportunities, but just because... That's the nature of people. If you don't like the state you're in, you change your state. And that meant all of a sudden companies needed to raise the bar a little bit. And I think that's great. Like that is a silver lining coming out of all of this. That's true. What is the biggest learning that you got from that period? How did it make you stronger? Exercise. That's it. Nothing much more than that. It's so easy to drown yourself in work. And when the world collapses a little bit, you stop taking care of yourself as a person. Uh -huh. Yeah. And there's many different ways you can take care of yourself. You can meditate. You can give yourself time to paint. You can read books. You can eat healthier. Like there's many different ways to take care of yourself. And I think one of the most important things in, like, in that period was no matter what happens, you need to keep taking care of yourself. Founders burn out left, right, and center because they stop. And in this period, there were various things that I absolutely let slip. And when awesome. I realized that, I have an amazing business mentor. And when I realized this with him, he came back and he said to me, your only mission in the next month, only mission, not about revenue, not about investors, not about team. Your only mission is to start exercising. Because for me, exercise has always been a way to fix everything, both physical and mental. And he was right. 
And in that month, regardless of what happened, it was actually, actually a good month, but regardless, the very next month, I felt so much better. So when the world gets a little bit hard, still remember to take care of yourself. You are a person, not just a founder. You need to oil your machine to be able to make it work. You need to take care of yourself. That's what I learned in that period. By not doing it first, but we learn from our mistakes more so than anything else. Exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, that also maybe the answer to the question that I normally ask at the end. It's like from the tidbits of wisdom that you've gained and learned over time as an entrepreneur, what would be a do or a don't? What advice that you would give to other entrepreneurs that aspire to get there as well? I'll be extremely annoying to everyone and say exercise. Okay. So, That's what, what I, I mean, thought. Like, yeah. And in fairness, sometimes you can do so many things that could or couldn't work for your business. But one thing that you can make a hundred, like be a hundred percent certain will help your cognitive abilities, your level of focus. Yeah. Is exercise enough, sleep enough and eat decently. And exercise is the most important of those followed by sleep, followed by diet. And You know, high performers in Counter-Strike, many of those have exercise regimes because it makes you better. The best chess players have exercise regimes. If you want to be a founder, if you want to be a successful business owner, if you want to have an impact in the world, it's driven by you. So make you the best you you can be. And that's not just mindset. That's also the machinery that is your physical body. Well said. And I think these are nice words to conclude on. So thank you very much, Nima, yeah, for sharing the wisdom, for sharing the impressive story about your business and the, the mission you're on to solve, because it's a big one. That report that you were talking about is just, I think, the tip of the iceberg. So keep on going and make sure that the world will get their hands on it and then start using it, as you say, on your LinkedIn profile. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And any of your impactful audience here that really actually want to make a change in the world, I will be happy to speak with because we're all on missions and some of the missions may be different, but we need to stand together in changing the world. So thank you so much for having me today. It was a pleasure. And this ends my conversation with Nemo. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Nemo de Krill, CEO of Sigma Polaris. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode.
Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.